Through contact with a mysterious ooze, four turtles in the sewers of New York City mutate into intelligent, pizza-loving humanoids. They are mentored in the art of ninjutsu by their master Splinter, an anthropomorphic rat. Splinter bestows upon the four turtles the names of Leonardo, Donatello, Michelangelo, and Raphael. When the evil Shredder attempts to take over the world and kidnaps Master Splinter, the Turtles set out to stop him and rescue their master with the help of plucky investigative reporter April O'Neil and nighttime sports enthusiast vigilante Casey Jones. Can the Turtles hold true to what they've learned, rescue Splinter, and stay together as a brotherhood? Ciao my people, and welcome to our 81st episode of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast, where we discuss superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, and more. If it came from a comic and had theatrical release, you know we'll discuss it. Naturally, there will be spoilers, folks, so you have been warned. I'm along with your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and today we'll be discussing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And with me today to discuss this first live-action outing of our heroes in a half-shell is the one and only Mr. Russell Moran. Hey, Russ, how are you doing? I'm great, Nick. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, thanks, Russ, and super, super happy to, uh, to welcome you to the Happiness in Darkness podcast. It's great to finally have you on. I am beyond excited to be here. Oh, well, the pleasure is certainly ours. So today we are, of course, discussing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1990, directed by Steve Barron, whom our listeners might know from Coneheads, The Adventures of Pinocchio. He actually directed Michael Jackson's Billie Jean video and also AHA's Take On Me. So he's done a little bit of movies, a little bit of music videos. The story was by Bobby Herbeck, who also wrote the screenplay alongside Todd W. Langan, and the original scores by John Dupree. And an estimate to put it in today's money, Russ, this movie cost $27 million to make and made $406 million at mm. the box office. So definitely a very impressive outcome for this very first movie. So first off, my first question here is, Russ, is why did you want to discuss this movie? Why, why do you decide to bring this movie to the podcast? And what is your relationship, if you will, with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Well, I think, um, you know, I grew up with this movie, obviously. Mm. In fact, this was the movie that introduced me to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I was more familiar with this live-action movie than I was the 87 cartoon. Mm. Um, And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it on here is, one, I feel like, you know... It's one of the most popular franchises that hasn't been covered yet on your show. And and two, you know, you see a lot of movies as a kid and you're like, when you watch them as an adult, they don't hold up. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely think this one holds up. Hmm, interesting. So, so uh, after, so I guess this, you said this was your first, shall we say, introduction to these characters. Following that, did you then get into the actual original comics, or did, I mean, did you kind of grab the, I guess, what they could call Turtle Mania after this? Because I know this getting spawned a Turtle Mania of its own between, you know, obviously the action figures, the toys, the video games, and all this kind of stuff. So, were you into all that kind of stuff? Oh, I was definitely a turtle fanatic. Uh, I uh, I had a lot of the toys. I played the Super Nintendo games, um, and uh, we used to rent the uh, VHS tapes of the cartoon at my local library. Um, mm-hmm. But 
I didn't actually get into the comics until I was an adult. So, right. yeah. And I mean, and how did you find that, you know, compared to, to the film? I mean, because obviously, for folks who don't know, the comics are quite a departure and they kind might be a little bit more, should we say, rough and maybe a little bit extreme, especially the early ones tend to be a little bit more on the violence side. Were you kind yeah. of thrown, thrown back by, by that compared to what you'd known about the Turtles? Well, I was I was kind of prepared ahead of time. I had always heard that the comics were darker, mm. um, but um, at the same time, you know, I feel like this movie is one of the better adaptations of a comic book material. Mm. Um, like it's it's insane how accurate this movie is to some of the storylines in that original Mirage comics, mm-hmm. but also you know, fusing in kind of the ideas and personalities from the cartoon. So it's like the perfect amalgamation of the original comics and the cartoon. Very well said. And I'm actually glad that, you know, it was the kind of cartoons that gave us the various different colored bandanas, because Mm -hmm. in the comics, Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to tell the characters apart from the four turtles, because they all are basically four Raphaels, because they all have the red bandana. (laughs) So you're like... It's kind of hard to tell them apart, and I think it was a very clever choice to to yeah. give each turtle their own color. So let's start by looking at our four amphibian heroes themselves, which were brought to life by an incredibly talented array of in-suit performers and stunt doubles. And, you know, folks, the wonderful Jim Henson had his hand in when it came to the actual, should we say, physical look at the turtles. So here we actually have, when it comes to voices at least, Brian Tochi as Leonardo, Corey Feldman as Donatello, Josh Pais as Raphael, and Robbie Rist as Michelangelo. So when it came to our four heroes, Russ, what did you make of these four, and do you have a favorite? Well, um, I I love them all in this movie. Mm. Um, I definitely think the, they were trying to... This this is Raphael's movie. Yes. Um, this, is, uh, this is all about him. Um, I love how... How much of a a, a butthead he is! <laughs> um, he uh, he's he's got that perfect amount of angst and anger, and I just love his voice and his accent. And uh, I he's just you know he's great. Um, well, Lee, Leo, you know he's the he's the leader. He's the honorable one. He he's the one that is the true the truest. Uh, you know, student of Master Splinter. Mm-hmm. He like tries tries to adhere to the ninja ways, and he's honorable for that. But some might say that Leo's the most boring turtle. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Donnie Donatello is my favorite turtle, mm-hmm. but I'm not I'm not sure he gets his due in this movie. Right. Um, he's uh, they really only hint at him being the smart turtle like twice in this once when he's working on the car with uh, Casey and um, the other is like when he's talking about the structural integrity of the, uh, of April's uh, store. But yeah, I'm not sure Corey Feldman was the best choice to play him, but um, yeah, he's okay. He's, he's, he kind of gets reduced to a second Michelangelo. Yeah. Um, 
more comic relief. Speaking of Michelangelo, I think he's great in this. Like he is so funny and his voice is perfect. I think in terms of just this movie alone, I would say Michelangelo was my favorite turtle in this movie. Well said, yeah, and I think Robbie Rist probably does a, does probably the best job of the four because you know I have a love hate relationship when it comes to Corey Feldman because there mm. are films I absolutely love him in. I mean, of course, you know we know the Goonies and what have you because obviously he was this was kind of his time. Obviously, the eighties slash nineties were the Corey Feldman years, if you will. Um, and yeah, and he's he's okay, but I definitely agree with. It. I think the strongest performances are probably given by Robbie Rist when it comes to Michelangelo and definitely Brian Tochi. I think as well as uh, Leonardo and you know coming off the the highly successful animated show which had aired three years late three years earlier as you had reminded us you know in syndication from 87 to 90 it was then picked up by CBS in 1990 the personalities of these four I think are somewhat inspired by the, by the comics but more so by the TV show, which kind of gave, as we mentioned, the turtles, the different color bandanas and the more distinct personalities. And, and I think, you know, as you mentioned, Leonardo comes across as very much being the more somber and at times more mature of the group. And it Mm. seems like he never really can. The funny thing is he never really, I think considers himself to be the leader. It's almost bestowed upon him by splinter and, I'm assuming also, and Donatello, who actually kind of points it out kind of mockingly that he's mm-hmm. their leader. He, yeah. does, he, does, he does seem to be the one who feels responsible, though, for the other three, as we see that he keeps that constant vigil over Raphael when he's recovering from his beatdown with the foot. Raphael, I feel, like you were mentioning, this is his movie, because he's possibly the most developed of the group if we're looking just at character development. Because he's very much the fiery and more rebellious of our quartet and possibly could be seen as the direct opposite to Leonardo. As, you know, Leo tends to be more conservative, while Raphael, I think, wants to interact more with the world. And uh, he has more of a modern outlook compared to Splinter. He's very much kind of the, you know, he's literally the teenager who doesn't want to listen to to the old guy saying, I want to do (laughs) things my way. Um, And yeah, I agree with you. Donatello seems to somewhat be somewhat the inventor in this but not as much as we have seen him as aside from working on the car or the truck with casey jones we don't really see him doing any inventory or tinkering and well michelangelo i mean he's just so lovable he's very much the baby of the group i think he's kind of fun loving and all about pizza and stuff so (laughs) (laughs) it was great fun what did you think of that high kind of whole concept of as soon as you say the word pizza these guys go crazy i mean did you like (laughs) the fact they really did act like teenagers yeah, I mean, I act that way when I get pizza, don't you? Nick? Uh, <laughs> True. But, uh, yes, that's how much we love pizza. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I I think it's great. I mean, at you know, at the at the end of the day, this is a this is a kids movie. Mm-hmm. Now, there's there's definitely a darkness to it. There's a grittiness to it, and there's some um, themes in this that are definitely more mature. I would right. say. But at the end of the day, this is for kids. And, you know, when they get excited about pizza, it just makes me laugh. Like, that's I, that's what it's intended to do, that and sell more pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you know what? They actually did their job because while I was re-watching this, I actually really wanted pizza that moment. I was like, yeah. dang it, it's too late to call an order because I so want pizza right now. Um, but yeah, so they definitely did their job with that. And you do make a good point about kind of, you know, taking on some more adult things. And it's, uh, I, I mean, all in all, it's, it's definitely a fun movie. So, of course, you can't have the turtles without their wise sensei. 
And we actually here get veteran puppet performer Kevin Clash as Splinter, whom, amongst other characters, he's actually the voice of Elmo and also other Sesame Street characters. So he's definitely very much a versatile voice actor. Now, what did you think of Kevin Clash's performance and Splinter in this film? Well, I I loved it. I I think Splinter in this is great. Um, you definitely get that wise feel. You know, he's he's almost like Master Yoda in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, he he gives that speech um, when he uh, when he's basically saying goodbye to his sons in that campfire, yeah. um, and it's real powerful stuff. Um, I I love Splinter in this. I think his puppeteer work is great. The suit looks great. I meant to say that about the turtles too, that I still think the suits look way better than the CGI that they would use later. But um, yeah, I think Splinter is great in this. So I'm I'm thinking that you also are, you know, because I'm a huge Jim Henson fan, no matter what he's done. So I'm assuming you're a big fan. Were you a, or are you a big fan of Jim Henson? I mean, like the Muppets or, you know, the Dark Crystal or stuff like this. I definitely like I grew up watching the Muppets and Sesame Street for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think this is where my Jim Henson fandom really came from. And I do love the Dark Crystal, too. But, yeah, I would say this is my Jim Henson, like, uh, introduction was the Turtles. Yeah, and and I very much agree because I think, you know, when it comes to the new stuff, like you were pointing out, they're they're good movies, you know, and obviously we'll discuss them at a later date uh, eventually. But I do think that uh, it goes to show, I think, that practical special effects sometimes work better than CGI. And it's uh, it's interesting how you know this I think is very much a lost art these days where mm-hmm, you actually did yes. have did have puppets you know I mean I mentioned the Dark Crystal which is pretty much only puppets and it is like yeah. no live other actors or you even think of um, I think of Labyrinth which to me which mm-hmm. is a cult classic and I still love Labyrinth to these this day it's a very much a lost art and it's a shame that we don't get that anymore because now obviously CGI is the thing. But, but yeah, it's great. I mean, the character of Splinter, I think, is is closer possibly to the comic rather than the animated TV show. As I as I, I mentioned, you know, as I mentioned in his introduction, he he could be considered maybe a little like your stereotypical sensei, which cinema going folks in the '90s knew very, uh, all too well. I mean, immediately made me think of Master Miyagi, and no surprise, we have a character called Daniel in this film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I myself, I wonder whether they are channeling Karate Kid here. <laughs> but um, I, must, I must say that even before the ooze changed him. Interestingly, Splinter was a highly intelligent rat because, I mean, to even have a concept, (laughs) I I mean, I have to hand it to him because not only does he have a concept of his surroundings, but he understands the concept of something as complex as ninjutsu. So (laughs) I was like, wow, how many rats can do that? And it's not like he was genetically (laughs) modified, just like watching his master through a cage and he was able to mimic his movements. I, did you find that maybe a little bit over the top or crazy, or did you were you able to you know kind of say okay, I'll buy into the fact that we've got a rat who knows how to do kung fu? Well, it's definitely you know nuts, um, yeah. but but that's his exact origin from the original comics. Um, the cartoon changed it to where he was uh, Hamato Yoshi mutated into a rat. 
So that makes a little bit more sense. But I think that the rat origin, as silly as it is, works well for this movie. Um, and and uh, I always get a kick out of seeing that little rat puppet doing those ninja kicks. <laughs> True. I mean, I, I do think that maybe the the animated show origin, like you said, makes more sense because maybe folks are like, how the heck can a rat know how to move like that? But I mean, it's, and then as you said, yeah, because in the, in the uh, TV show, it's actually Hamato Yoshi who turns into a, you uh, should say an anthropomorphic rat. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it was silly, but I guess, you know, you, you buy into it because that's, I guess, the mood of this film. It is very much, I guess, a popcorn movie, movie in that sense. So you, you buy into it. And, also, I was wondering, is it just me, or was Kevin Clash kind of flip-flopping between a stereotypical Japanese accent and almost sounding Jamaican? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if I picked up on that. I definitely uh, always hear the stereotypical Japanese accent, but you know what? It, he could have been. <laughs> yeah, because it was weird. I was like, wait a minute. This is, you know, why is, does he sound like some Bob Marley kind of ripoff here? <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe it's just me because, I mean, I have, you know, as I said, this is the kind of accent that you got at the time. You know, so I did yeah. forgive it because it is, you know, very stereotypical. But yeah, it yeah. sounded like, I don't know, whether Kevin Clash was not un, un, was unsure and whether, like, I'm going to make this guy Jamaican. No, I'm going to make him Japanese. I don't know. I'll do a bit of both. <laughs> but it was fun. And I did find it fitting that he and Shredder did have the final showdown. I thought that oh, was kind of sure. I, did, did you like that? Were you happy that it was uh, it was him rather than the Turtles kind of beaten, you know, get, being able to get the best of, best of Shredder? Yeah, I think that works perfectly because, one, it completes both Splinter and Shredder's arc in the mm. movie. Yeah. But also, I mean, it shows you how formidable that the Shredder is that the four turtles weren't able to beat him. Yeah. Um, but Splinter is a master, and Splinter basically causes Shredder to become enraged, therefore losing his focus, and Splinter takes advantage of him. So... Uh, yeah, I like that a lot. And I wish, no, yeah, go ahead. I was I was just gonna say that I know it wouldn't have been possible at the time with the the puppet and the suit and all that. I wish they could have actually fought, mm. you know, had an actual martial arts battle. But you know, it worked out well how it how it did. True. I mean, I suppose it was kind of like the whole thing of why doesn't Yoda fight in the original Star Wars trilogy, right? right <laughs> we right. never, we never get him get to see him do anything. Should we say action packed? And I think that was a lot of folks were kind of. I, I, I mean, obviously, I wasn't alive in the seventies, so I don't know. But I wonder whether folks were wondering if Yoda is so cool, why can't he do any of the kind of nifty moves with the with <laughs> you know with a lightsaber and stuff? Obviously, in the later trilogies, we actually did get to see Yoda fighting, and you know, baby Yoda, you know, not to spoil anything, but he gets up to some pretty interesting antics himself. Um, yeah, uh, Grogu. Yeah. I mean, yeah, pardon me, Grogu. I don't want to you know set, call him baby Yoda anymore because I know he's called Grogu. I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> um, so, of <laughs> so of course, another staple when it comes to Turtles fans is of course the lady who provides their gateway from the sewers to the surface world. And here we actually have April O'Neil 
played in this case by Judith Hogue, whom our listeners will probably know from Big Love, Nashville, and The Magicians. And apparently, she was not easy to work with, which is why she did not return for the sequel. And mm. fun, f- fun fact in the comics, April is not a journalist, but rather an incredibly gifted computer programmer come antique shop owner. So it's interesting they made her into a journalist as they had in the, uh, in the TV show. So... Uh, Russ, what did you make of Judith Hogue's performance and uh, of this April O'Neil compared to, say, maybe your uh, Miss Fox, for example, who came on later and mm-hmm. other iterations of the character? Well, I think this is by far my favorite version of April O'Neil. Mm. Um, in the comics, she kind of goes back and forth between, like, like you said, the computer programmer, but then they kind of drop that later on. Mm. Um in the cartoon, you know, she's just kind of there. <laughs> yes, like, she's a she's a she's a character and everything, but like she's always needed to be rescued. Whatever, she's the damsel in distress. I feel like the movie version, this first movie, she's a strong woman. Like she even helps the turtles a few times, like help fight the Foot Clan, and. Um, I I think her performance was great, especially when she wakes up and sees the turtles for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, overall, uh, I really enjoy her performance. I hadn't heard that she was difficult to work with. Mm. I know that recently she's kind of, like, re-embraced the movie. So Mm. maybe it just kind of took her a while to come around to it. But, um, yeah, I really, I, I think she's my favorite April of all time. Oh, okay. So, uh, so I'm assuming you weren't a particular fan of Megan, Megan Fox's portrayal. Uh, it was it was okay. Like, I, I'm not crazy about those movies, mm-hmm. but I mean, I thought she was fine in them. Yeah, because you know what? That I, I will. I'm going to actually show my hand here. You know, for and you know, for whoever I have to end up reviewing that those films with. I know that Megan Fox was a major draw for the films. More than anything, because, okay, she's an incredibly attractive woman, mm-hmm. but that was kind of it. And I mean, you know, the, the the character didn't have much depth to her aside from looking incredibly gorgeous in every single shot. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, I'm, you know, I don't want to obviously throw too much shade on Megan Fox, but that was kind of the thing. Whereas I think that um, Judith Hogue did a much better job. Granted, maybe she was given better lines. And I don't know about you, but she reminded me a little bit of the character of Beverly Switzler from Howard the Duck. Mm, yeah, I can kind, see that. Kind of, pl- yeah. Because, you know, Leah Thompson's performance in that kind of reminded me of that. Granted, Howard the Duck came out four years before this film. But, yeah. uh, but I did see some comparisons between the two. And though, of course, unlike Beverly... April is definitely not naive or wide-eyed as Beverly yeah. is. And it, it does not surprise me that the writers decide, her, decide to make her closest to Raphael when it comes to her favorite turtle, if you was. She is very much like Raphael. She's very headstrong mm-hmm. and rebellious or literally never listens to her boss. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised she didn't get fired earlier, to be honest. I guess she's just that good of a journalist. But I... Yeah. Uh, and she's very much, you know, on the hunt for the truth and is always calling out people on their BS. Also, I guess it was predictable that her and Casey Jones would hook up. And though she does seem pretty frazzled at times, she does handle these very outlandish situations that she's thrown in very well. 
And I thought it was actually interesting, and I really appreciated that she was not the one to be captured by the foot mm-hmm. over Splinter. As you know, yeah. you could have had that typical trope of the damsel in distress, which we didn't get, and I was so glad about that. Also, here's another curious one. I'm wondering about this woman's financial assets. As clearly <laughs> she is paid next to nothing, seeing where she lives, Yet she has this incredible family estate. How does that yeah. work? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Uh, um, the, um, the only way I can figure is, you know, her, maybe it was just, well, because, you know, the, the estate that they, that they go back to is not exactly, you know, the Ritz-Carlton. Uh, and mm-hmm. it it seems to be abandoned, and as we see, a lot of the stuff there is either broken or not working. Um, yep. So I just assume it was like an old family, you know, house that she was left in the will or something. But you know, because it's abandoned, obviously there's no one there. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's yeah because it is odd. I mean, unless, unless like you said, you know, maybe some uncle or relative left it to her, and she's like. Eh, I don't need this. I'm going to kind of just leave it there to kind of fall to pieces. But you think to yourself, if she did that place up well and renovated it, it could be a seriously cool house or a very seriously oh, cool sure. estate. But yeah. she just doesn't seem to want it, which is curious. And when they actually, you know, before we actually discuss him in more detail, did you buy the, should we say, budding relationship between her and Casey Jones? Um, I did. But also, you got to look at it in the constraints of a kid's movie. Um, I definitely think they had chemistry. But, um, you know, they were kind of that typical trope of the old married couple that bicker all the time, and then they finally fall in love. Uh, Like, it's that kind of uh, will they, won't they, and then, of course, they do. Uh, it did seem a little forced at times, but I think it was all right. No, I, I think so, too. And, of course, obviously, in the comics, these two actually get married and uh, mm-hmm. and so on. So, you know, spoilers, folks. But, yeah, apparently, and they also raise a son together. So they it is true to the comics in that sense. So let's get to our other human character, at least when it comes to the good guys who joins Team Turtle. We have, of course, ex-hockey player and sports fanatic himself, and I'm so glad they actually did cast a Canadian for this role. <laughs> of course, we have Elias Cotius as Casey Jones, who my listeners might know from some kind of wonderful crash, the thin red line, and so much more. And this character in the comics actually has a rather dark and traumatic backstory. And, of course, as I mentioned, he actually does marry April in the comics, and they raise a son called Shadow together. So, um, what did, Russ, what did you make of Casey Jones? Uh, his performance is one of my favorites in the movie. Um, oh. He's just so much fun, and he's funny. And uh, he, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the first time he encounters Raphael. And they just, the, the back and forth bickering between the two <laughs> is just <laughs> just great and you know uh Raphael makes the comment about it. don't tell me you paid money for this bat because it's <laughs> but uh yeah I thought he was great um was that a Jose def- Canseco bat yes a okay, Jose Canseco bat <laughs> and uh yeah I, yeah I thought his performance was really good um he uh 
He definitely embodied the character from the comics pretty well, especially with that mask. That mask was spot on. Um, unfortunately, he didn't get to wear it that much, but, you know, that's how movies go. And um, definitely more... Re- <laughs> the uh, cartoon version of Casey Jones was pretty much just a homicidal maniac. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed him quite a bit. I think he's one of my favorite parts of the movie. You know what? I think I'm right with you because, as you mentioned in the in the TV in the TV show in the animated show, he is very much a homicidal maniac. He's kind of like Jason Voorhees with a voice, basically. Because yes. <laughs> if Jason yeah. could speak, that's probably what it would sound like. And uh, I think it was it was great. And I I did find this Casey Jones a very fun character because he does embody somewhat the stereotypes of your '90s jock. And mm-hmm. you do wonder what he does during the day when he's not playing vigilante in the park and how he makes his living. I mean, I'm guessing he works as a mechanic. Do you think that's a fair assessment, Russ? Uh, yeah, I could see that. Or, you know, because um, that one when we see that shot of Casey uh, on the roof mm-hmm. seeing Raphael like across the way. He seems to be working on something, so maybe maybe he is a mechanic or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, I tend to nitpick on these things. I know I probably shouldn't. I should probably just sit back and enjoy it. But I just think to myself, <laughs> what does this guy do all day when he's not playing vigilante? Because I think to myself, the guy has to eat somehow. So either mm-hmm. he's beating up people and stealing their din- their lunches, or I don't know. But um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's just me. I guess I have to find, sometimes I look for logic where I shouldn't. But he's very much like you were saying, kind of the mouthy, rowdy lead. And of course, by film Z, he will get the girl and I think I agree with you when you say that he and April did have great chemistry despite it being very much a trope though of course it is a homage to the character about them hooking up by film's end and he does seem to connect to pretty much all the turtles but especially with Donatello as they both seem to be major gearheads and so they're just kind of you know doing the whole kind of banter back and forth while they're working on the truck so it was it was it was good fun and you know i would have liked to have seen him wear the mask more but i suppose maybe mr baron thought to himself elias cotis is too much of a pretty boy to let him not not show his (laughs) face you know and you're gonna have to you have to have that eye candy you know for for folks so i guess that's why they they allowed uh, elias cotis to show his face so i i get it so so let's get to the dark side of the table where we have, of course, the foot. And I think the most developed characters when it comes to Avalon's are Toshihiro Obata as Tatsu, and Shre- who is Shredder's second in command. And of course, the main man himself, James Saito as Oroku Saki, the Shredder. And of course, our folks might know him from Eli Stone, Always Be My Maybe and Modern Love. And as of last year, he is actually a member of the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences. So this guy, the Shredder, gets to be among those who can cast his vote for things like Best Picture, Best Actor, <laughs> Best Actress. So that's amazing. That's pretty cool. You know, I'm glad that he yeah. was in, that he was invited onto the Academy and is now a member of the Academy. So when it came to uh, you know Tatsu and, and and the Shredder, what did you make of these two? Well, I think Tatsu is just so much fun because yeah. <laughs> you know. He mostly just, like Casey Jones makes fun of at that one point, he mostly just, 
<laughs> and uh, but he definitely has a aura of like badass to him. Like you don't want to mess with him at all. You, you yeah. he he seems scary. Now speaking of scary, I think the Shredder steals the show in this whole movie, as all good villains do. Mm-hmm. Um, every time he's on screen, you're just mesmerized because his voice and his his actions they're just oh they're so good a long shot away from the 87 cartoon or even i'd venture to say this shredder is even better than the comic book version of shredder Hmm. um but uh yeah i think one of the my the one of my favorite scenes in the movie is just that that long walk of the shredder reveal (laughs) and with that like with Shredder's theme playing in the background, oh, that gives me goosebumps every time I see it. Well, and, and I, in fact, I noticed that, uh, you know, you, you definitely love the, the Shredder gif, I noticed, that you were posting yeah. all over the place. So, and you rightfully make a great point, because it's interesting how we really sort of don't get Shredder for a large portion of this film, and everybody's kind of talking about him, and we kind of see him in the shadows. So he is this ominous presence which then, you know, obviously gets introduced. And you make a great point. I mean, his entrance, the guy knows how to make an entrance. It it reminded me slightly, you know, going back to the uh, Star Wars stuff of when we first see Darth Vader for the first time. Because you kind of have this almost very epic moment. And, you know, with the Shredder's case, they're literally putting out the carpet for him because he's that (laughs) sort of a majestic person who, you know, woe betide him being able to walk, you know, where other mortals walk. So you have to put out the carpet for him and stuff. And, and, uh, yeah, James Seidel does a great job of of playing the character. The voice is great. The costume, you know, some folks might find a little bit uh, cheesy, but I think it works and, mm-hmm. uh, and and we got to see some of his fighting prowess as well. You know, when he basically takes the all four turtles on at once, and yeah. you know, let, let's hand it let's hand it to. Him. I mean, he does he does uh, basically kind of you know kick their butts and then some. You know, we see what a proficient fighter he is, and yeah. kind of like Vader, he does he is very attuned mentally as well. He does have that whole ninja instinct, which seems to be the big theme of this film is. It's mind over matter almost rather than yeah. how good of a fighter you actually are. And that's yeah. so it, it, we do kind of get that almost Obi-Wan Kenobi, Darth Vader thing when Shredder and Splinter actually meet, I, fa- I, I found. Yeah, um, I, you know, you, you could you could say that Shredder is a one dimensional villain, especially in this movie. But you got to look at the layers on this here because the Shredder. I mean, he's been brainwashing the young people of New York, mm-hmm. like these people that are looking for a family. And he tells them in a obvious nod to Star Wars that he is their father. Yes. And uh, yeah, he's just uh, he's a powerful fighter. He's an imposing presence. And he's also very manipula- manipulative. But um, it's great. At the end, because the big reveal that Shredder was, in fact, a Rokusaki the whole time. Um, I'm glad that they didn't just say that up front, that, you know, the, they they saved it for the big reveal. And when the Turtles realized that, oh, God, we've been fighting, we've been fighting the guy that killed Splinter's master and chopped off his ear. And... Um, 
it's a big moment, and it's really great that Splinter finally gets that comeuppance against uh, Shredder. And like I said earlier, and like you alluded to, he he uses Shredder's like rage against him because Shredder realizes, oh my, this is the rat that disfigured me, mm-hmm. so. I have to kill this thing, and that, that's all I can think about. And Shredder uses, or I'm sorry, Splinter uses Shredder's momentum to uh, to knock him over the side. Now the thing is, Shredder is actually the one that pretty much causes himself to fall. Like yes, uh, and oddly enough, that's when Splinter says he's without honor. Um, so, yeah, I think it's good. I think it's great. Like I said, I think Shredder really steals the show in this. Every time he's on screen, you're, like, focused. <laughs> Very much so. He definitely commands that, that, so that attention. And when he actually came to, to the foot, in this case, the Foot Clan, did you like the concept of it being, you know, uh, New York City's youth? being kind of in kind of inducted if you will and kind of brainwashed into this life of crime or would you prefer to have seen something more akin to the animated tv show or or something like that um it's a little goofy like mm. i i'd say in in some ways it's a little realistic like um it it makes for a more personal story that these are like the kids of new york that are being brainwashed but at the same time, you kind of want like the elite ninjas being the ones that are <laughs> part of your clan, which I guess that makes it easier for them to explain how you know they're pretty much cannon fodder. They get beat up all the time, mm-hmm. and they are trained by a very adept martial artist in Tatsu. But at the same time, yeah, it's a little goofy that these are just some random kids, but... Um, I think it's better than them being robots like they were in the cartoon. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, I suppose also if you made them robots, you probably would have to have introduced Krang as well. Yeah. Because you'd, yeah. you'd have to think to yourself, because I mean, then you'd also have to explain the whole concept of where in the world did Shredder get this tech to create these robots. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, granted in later films, we will get the likes of Krang and, and what have you, but, uh, I, I suppose it made, like you said, you make a great point when you say it makes more for a personal story with these kids. And I suppose kids being your prime audience, you're mm. probably also giving the message of stay in school, kids. Don't be yeah. like these folks who don't disobey their parents, who don't go to school and become thieves, you know, and yes. doing these horrible <laughs> things. So it may have been almost a moral of the story lesson of, kind of be you know stay on the good side of 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 things and stay in school rather than be a a felon or or a thief so it might have been that so i think it was it makes sense you'd show your target audience what you know the the negative side of being part of the of the foot so i think that's 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 what it was i mean i i get what they were doing so let's get to ratings then russ what do you give teenage mutant ninja turtles out of 10 well the nostalgia part of me wants to give it a 10 out of 10, mm-hmm. but uh, I think uh, I'll give it an uh, an 8.5 out of 10. Um, I, yeah, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, go ahead. Good. I was just going to say, um, I think it 
you know, some of it's dated, but it still holds up really well. It's got a great score. It's got a great cast, and it's got a good story. There's some heartfelt moments in this, you know, between the moment where Leo won't leave Raphael. Uh, Raphael's kind of recovering from his beatdown in that tub, and when Raphael finally wakes up, it's like, what's a guy got to do to get some food around here? And, <laughs> and, and Leo just embraces him, and uh, it. And like I mentioned earlier, when the four turtles are talking to Splinter, basically Force Ghost Splinter, and uh, he uh, tells them, basically tells them goodbye, and uh, Michelangelo starts crying. Yeah, I just think it's great. Like, it's well acted. The, the special effects are great. The score is great. The story is great. Yeah, I, and you know what? I'm going to bump up my score to a 9, a 9 out of 10. Well, hey, totally fair. I'm actually going to give this a seven and a half out of ten as I really enjoyed it. It's good fun. It's definitely, I mean, I often say this on the podcast. If you know you're kind of sitting there on a Friday night and you don't know what to watch, I definitely suggest you either if you own, you know, the DVD or the Blu-ray, you know, pop it on. Maybe have some popcorn on the side or some nachos or whatever, you know kind of um, munchies of choice with a good a good cold beverage and, and just sit back and watch it i think hey, or hey even better get yourself a nice pizza and watch this because i think it's a, <laughs> it's definitely definitely worth the watch so i definitely give it a seven and a half out of ten and you pointed out the 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 music uh, russ but at the end of the film we get partners in crime with t-u-r-t-l-e power <laughs> here's my question are you a fan? Of, did you enjoy that that song? Because granted, we'll get Vanilla Ice in the sequel. What did you think of Partners in Crime? Uh, I thought it was a fun song. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's the only time I've I've encountered that artist. I mm-hmm. think is that song. Uh, it's just fun. It it feels like you know. It seemed like in that era that they always contracted an artist to make a song kind of about the movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I feel like that was in line with that. And, you know, it definitely feels like that that early hip-hop, that, like, late 80s, early 90s rap hip-hop. So it, it's fun. <laughs> well, you know what? Don't feel bad about, you know, not being too familiar with Partners in Crime because they only had three singles. So Oh, okay. You know, they were, they were active. Funny thing, they were active from 90 to 91. So one year, and then they came back in 2015, and they had three three year singles: "Turtle Power," "Undercover," and "Rock the Half Shell." So it almost <laughs> seems like they were kind of born out of Turtle Mania. I mean, I don't want to, yeah. as I said, I don't want to diss Partners in Crime. I'm sure they're great people and great rappers in their own right. I mean, I enjoy myself hip hop now and again, but it's curious that they've only had they only were active one year from 1991 and then came back in 2015 to record another <laughs> turtle themed song. You kind of wonder what that is all about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, however you make your money, I guess. <laughs> it's like, Oh, another turtles movie. Let's get back together and record a hip hop song. <laughs> and hopefully they'll put us on the end credits. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, it's a fun song. And I, uh, and it's interesting like you say that trope we would get in the 90s and uh, a little bit into the early 2000s where you had a movie and then the movie would end with usually a hip hop song about the characters or about the film. 
and it's it was it was it was curious it, it was it's an interesting trope that I think we can say thankfully no longer exists because maybe it was a little yeah. bit too too on the nose sometimes but um but yeah I, I, it's uh, as I said it's it's a thing that's kind of gone fizzled out of fashion but I enjoyed the uh, partners in crime song the turtle power but yes yeah, so it was good so let's get to reading recommendations or other recommendations turtle wise in general Russ first off did you have any comics uh, or, or turtle uh, teenage mutant ninja turtle stories you'd like to uh, recommend to our listeners or anything shall we say turtle related for sure um so this movie basically adapts several different issues of the comic but just kind of reworks the order in which they happen Mm-hmm. So for this movie, if you want to read the comics that inspired this movie, and I think if you read this mo- these comics, you'll enjoy the movie even more as an adaptation. Mm-hmm. But you want to read, of the original Mirage Turtles, you want to read number one, number two, the Leonardo uh, Micro One-Shot, and then you want to read uh, issues 10 and 19 through 21. And if you want to find these in a nice trade form, they are in the TMNT Ultimate Collections, Volume 1 through 3. Fantastic. And yeah, uh, I'm right there with you, uh, Russ. Those, I think, also are fantastic comics. And it's great to see, you know, where they came from, what, you know, Peter Lard and Kevin Eastman gave us when it came to these these characters. And you know, it's, it, I actually saw, watched um, a couple of kind of interviews with these two folks, and they did, they themselves did not realize literally the gold mine they were sitting on, yeah. how yeah. how big it would become. And uh, there's actually a great uh, a great TV show on on Netflix, which I actually want to suggest to you. Not that Netflix pays my bills, folks, but I'm just putting it out there. Free <laughs> free plug, free plug, Netflix, folks. Um, check out the toys that made us. There's actually mm-hmm. a great special on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and it actually goes into greater uh, detail. Also, I believe both Peter Lard and Kevin Eastman are on there, and you get a great yep. perspective about all that. So it's everyone. Oh, so, so so you have checked that out yourself, uh, Russ? Oh, uh, oh yeah, I love the toys that made us, and I love the turtle special. I'd also shout out. There's an uh, there's a entire. Uh, turtles documentary called turtle power um uh i don't think it's streaming though you'd probably have to rent it or buy it um yeah but yeah i love the toys that made us i've loved every even the toys that i didn't grow up with i enjoy watching the specials on them yeah it's definitely a great documentary series because obviously it's you what i love about it is it's you know it plays as a as should we say as a documentary but at the same time it's very tongue-in-cheek which definitely yeah. makes it that much more fun. It's great to actually see where all these wonderful things came from and the fandom they spawned and what have you. So right there with you. And when it, because I know you're quite the video game uh, fan yourself. Mm-hmm. Have you played any of the recent uh, theme turtle games or were you more familiar with the, what was it, the Super Nintendo one you mentioned? Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously my favorites as a kid were uh, Turtles in Time, and actually uh, a rogue pick would be uh, Tournament Fighters, because I'm a big like Street Fighter Mortal Kombat fan, so that mm-hmm. one's cool. But uh, there was a game not too long ago, it was, uh, I can't quite, I was TMNT Mutants in Manhattan, That one, that's what it was. It was, it was pretty good. 
but it's nothing special. Um, it's based off the IDW comics, which I also highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there is a new TMNT game coming out this year that is pretty much a direct sequel to Turtles in Time called Shredder's Revenge. So I'm excited for that. Ooh, well, you know what? Then I'm definitely going to have to keep my eyes peeled on your social media because I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about that one, Russ, because you, you know, you're quite the, the expert when it comes to, to games and stuff. So I'm, I'm definitely be looking forward to your perspective on that for sure. And I would also finally suggest, folks, if you're fans of Batman as well as Turtles, check out the crossover Ooh. animated TV uh, movie. Um, Batman and versus the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That is, ab- you might think it sounds ridiculous, but it is so so fun and so good. H- have you seen that one, Ross? One of my absolute favorite animated movies. Uh, <laughs> it sh- it shouldn't work as well as it does, but it does. And the thing that surprised me about that movie is how violent it was. Um, <laughs> There's there's some gore in there, and uh, you get to see the turtles interact with all of Batman's big heavy hitters, from the Joker to the Scarecrow, Two Face, and they get mutated into mutants, and it's great. <laughs> but I think the highlight of the movie is, oh, and I, you might agree with me, Nick, is mm. just those those two big battles between Batman and the Shredder. <laughs> Oh yes, I will. Mer- I'm totally with you, and that's and that is why, folks. You might find it ridiculous, may, and you probably have heard of it, but it's so worth your while to watch Batman vs. the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because it's just a fantastic crossover. Like Russ was saying, it shouldn't work, but it does, and we are thankful for for it working so so well. And actually, I would love a sequel to that. I'm just saying. Oh, me too. <laughs> me too. Yeah, so it's definitely fantastic stuff. So, dear listeners, if you want to be like Russell and join us here on the show to discuss a movie of your choice, feel free to shoot us an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We really appreciate your thoughts and feedback about the show. You can reach out to those also at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. Feel free to show your support by giving us a like on Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness and Darkness. You can follow us on Twitter, we're at High Darkness Pod, or on Instagram under Him Darkness. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, the Feeling Generous, you can check out the great tiers we have going on on Patreon. There you'll be able to pick films that go outside of what is considered regular superhero movies, or even just films inspired by comics like 300 or Road to Perdition or I Kill Giants, Death Note, and more. Or even films which inspired comics such as Aliens, Robocop, Terminator, and more. Check all that out and uh, get us to review uh, anything outside the box feel free to head over to patreon that's patreon.com slash happiness and darkness big big shout out to all our wonderful patrons and supporters so russ when it comes to you and what you do when you're not here at happiness and darkness where can our fine listeners find you on the interwebs well uh as some of you may know i am the host of tomes of evil the comic book villain podcast every episode we do a deep dive on a different comic book supervillain. Can be from any comics, uh, you know, Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, Valiant. Or I'm even looking into, and I know I think you'll be interested in this, Nick, uh, mm. doing some uh, manga villains soon. Um, but uh, uh, we also have a few sub-series. Uh, one of them currently in production is the Hobgoblin Historia where we 
go through all of the uh, comic book appearances of uh, Spider-Man foe, the Hobgoblin, in order. We also announced a similar show for DC's Scarecrow called The Fear Files. Um, and uh, I just, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do a double plug here. Um, I just announced my first Patreon-exclusive show, so... That is uh, called Weeds of Crime, The Shadow in Comics, because the shadow knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Uh, <laughs> but uh, And you can get uh, my Patreon is www.patreon.com slash tomesofevilpod. My Twitter handle is also at Tomes of Evil Pod, and we do have a Facebook page as well. So come check us out. Uh, Nick has been a, a guest on the show, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm sure he can atone that it's a lot of fun. Oh, very much so. And I, I, folks, you know what? I've actually been bugging Russell constantly to come back to carry on with my with our wonderful chat that we had on Thanos. No, I, I'm just kidding, but no, we had I had a wonderful time, and folks definitely check out Tomes of Evil. It is fantastic, and be sure to show Russ some love on whatever social media you frequent because it's definitely worth your time, and, and be sure to check it out for sure. When it comes to me, for you country music lovers, I do host the radio show Whiskey and Cigarettes, where we play today's country, traditional country, and everything else in between. For more about that and where to tune in, can visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, feel free to check out our other project, Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast, where with co-hosts Zan Sprouse and Rachel Friend, we're reviewing all the movies that won the Oscar for Best Picture, from 1927's Wings to the present day. If any of you listeners out there want to join us for a discussion on your favorite Best picture winner you can hit us up at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com and you can find us of course on facebook and the twitter machine also i had the pleasure of joining jesse jackson and charles skaggs on the fandom zone we're currently discussing that wonderful tv show or should i say mcu show on disney plus the fan the the falcon and the winter soldier we're going through that uh, episode by episode and we're having a blast doing that and that's the fandom zone and speaking of things to come on this show, next week we'll be joined by Christine Peruski and Joe to discuss the 91 Michael Pressman film, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret oh! of the Ooze. <laughs> <laughs> See, Russ, you've started something. <laughs> oh, you know, that movie is, is, is way sillier than the first one, but it is a lot of fun, a lot of fun. <laughs> well, as I said, you, you opened... The, the lid of the sewers to the turtles here, Russ, because that, of course, next <laughs> next week we will be discussing the sequel to the uh, Baron film. And, of course, Russell, when it comes to you, I certainly look forward to having you back here on Happiness and Darkness, and I certainly thank you very much for joining me today. I will come back as many times as you want, Nick, because I love this show, and I uh, you're a great host. Oh, well, you're way too kind, and you definitely have an open invitation for sure. Well, folks, thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next week with Christine, Joe, and the Secret of the Ooze. Until then, stay super. Ciao, my people. On the half shell, they're the heroes for In this day and age, who could ask for more? The crime wave is high, with muggings mysterious All police and detectives are furious Cause they can't find the source Of this lethally evil force 
this is serious, so give me a quarter. I was a witness, get me a reporter. Call April O'Neil in on this case. Hey, you better hurry up, there's no time to waste. We need help like quick on the double. Have pity on the city, man, it's in trouble. We need heroes like the Lone Ranger when Tonto came pronto. When there was danger, they didn't say we'd be there in half an hour. Cause they displayed turtle power. Oh, 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 oh,